0: When we talk about conventional medicine versus naturopathic medicine, it's not so much in the treatment or the care plan; it's in the way the medicines themselves work. We talk a lot about energy—the energy of plants or medicines, or just the energy of people—and so oftentimes, what the goal of a naturopathic medicine doctor is treatment and outcome-based, but it's also on energy and quality of life.
1: Welcome to the Tonic. I'm your host Jamie Boston, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about the naturopathic approach to adapting and coping during tough times. We'll discuss micro and macronutrients. We'll find out about the exercises that support running, hiking, and walking. And lastly, we'll hear how to overcome loneliness. But first, a little bit of business. Are you stressed out? Feel exhausted? Having trouble sleeping? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, and sleep better. Discover de-stress, chill pills, and sleep aid from New Roots Herbal. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. For more information, visit newrootsherbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Melanie Kushneraki graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto in 2009 and has a degree in botany and plant physiology from the University of Ottawa. She has previous research experience in the Department of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto and in the Department of Epidemiology at University of Ottawa. Melanie was also a professional modern dancer before turning to naturopathic medicine and now enjoys the Argentine tango. And I have to be honest with you, I have no idea what the difference between tangos are, and that's a discussion for another day, but welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Jamie. Lovely to be here, and absolutely, I would love to talk about that on another show.
1: So everybody is focused on, you know, the direct effect of COVID, right? We're all worried about getting it. We're all worried about what that could do to our body and keeping up our immunity. But I've identified an issue that I think we should all be focusing in on. And that is, you know, these are tough times and that creates stress. And that stress can be damaging to us, too. And we really have to turn our minds to how we can sort of prevent that stress and help ourselves along. Do you agree with that?
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, as an naturopathic doctor, I've been seeing more and more of my patients coming to talk to me about the impacts of, of stress and particularly worry and anxiety. You know, worried about the illness, worried about their family members or if any of their family members get sick, you know, how to cope. And so it's definitely been something that has been ongoing since the pandemic started, I would say, and it seems to be increasing, especially as there's more news media about what's going on with this pandemic.
1: Yeah. And, and that was my next point. I, you know, you're know, you not a regular on the show, but I have real issues with the internet because I think people don't understand the difference between opinion and actual fact, and we're being inundated with advice that isn't necessarily helpful. Do you agree with that? Are you seeing that in your practice?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel, you know, in my general observation of things and what I see, you know, I think it's normal for people to kind of want to try to help themselves in the best way they can and help their loved ones. And so, you know, it's so easy to go to the Internet to, like, look up a bunch of stuff and try to find solutions on the Internet and try things out because, you know, they just want to feel better. And, you know, firstly, I just want to say there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I think it's a very normal reaction for people to do that, but what often happens is that the information can sometimes be interpreted as an opinion in that article, and it could be confusing for someone who doesn't know, you know, all the details about, you know, either the medical point of view or the research and the science, and so it can sometimes be misleading, and yeah, absolutely, it's sometimes hard to distinguish between opinion and facts and research, And so I definitely do get that in my practice, yes.
1: So let's talk a bit about your practice and sort of, you know, for those who don't understand where a naturopathic doctor comes from, can you explain a little bit about your training and your perspective on health?
0: Sure. So a naturopathic doctor typically has an undergraduate degree, and so it could be in uh, science or it could also be in arts. And then the training usually entails four years, of a naturopathic college, which they receive extensive training in, you know, medical sciences such as physiology, pathology, microbiology, diagnosis, laboratory, all kinds of gamuts and markers and things like that. And then we have a year of residency program where we get to see patients in our residency. And then for the most part, naturopathic doctors will then go on to open their own private practice or some of them might choose to work in a hospital in our community setting and so, there are more naturopathic doctors being integrated within our community, let's say, and we have an extensive medical background, but we also have a very good base in the traditional medicines and how to incorporate traditional medicines into someone's healthcare plan.
1: Right. So, philosophically, you're coming from a slightly different place than an allopathic doctor, or what a traditional MD would be, right?
0: Yeah. And first, I'd like to say that there. I mean, there's definitely some similarities sure. to that. Naturopathic doctors will, you know, want to first do no harm like any healthcare provider. Sure. We want to prevent, we want to educate. But where the difference lies particularly is in the way the medicines work. So, uh, naturopathic medicines or natural medicines, what have you, you know, are looked at as a more holistic type of medicine versus, you know, pharmaceutical or other compounds and medications that are a, a very reductionistic, isolated compound. And so, the difference, or when we talk about, you know, conventional medicine versus naturopathic medicine, it's not so much in the treatment or the, the, the care plan, it's in the way the medicines themselves work. Okay. In the sense of, like, conventional medicine is more reductionistic, naturopathic medicines are more holistic. And so oftentimes, you know, we, we talk a lot about energy, the energy of plants or medicines, or just the energy of of people. And so oftentimes our entire, like what the goal of a naturopathic medicine doctor is treatment and outcome-based, but it's also on energy and quality of life. And so it's a generalized holistic view versus a, you know reductionistic view and quite honestly both have their place in someone's care
1: right and so like in layman's terms you're treating the whole person right when you talk about holistically you're looking at their overall health and how it may interact with the symptomology might be that presents whereas an allopathic approach might be to deal with those symptoms directly and succinctly but there may be and and this seems to be a key difference in my experience is it's the side effects which sort of you know are problematic if from a holistic approach, you're trying to avoid those side effects, yeah.
0: Exactly, exactly. So I think the nature of, of natural products and natural medicines is that it's a very gentle medicine, and there's fundamental differences. So in natural health products, for example, or, or herbal medicines, there's many different chemical compounds in one single herb, you know many different active compounds. And it's believed, and there's even you know scientific literature on this, that it's the synergy of these compounds that exert this holistic effect, and can have side benefit of mitigating side effects right. versus you know a medical drug, which is primarily an isolated compound, and it's targeted to affect a particular function in the body, but because of that, there seems to be more prevalence of side effects, and so. That's sort of the fundamental difference is that we're trying to mitigate the side effects and to improve the quality of life during somebody's, you know, treatment or care or what have you.
1: Okay. Let's bring the focus back to stress and sort of this comfort that everybody seems to be feeling and talk about how a naturopath, you know, would deal, like what sort of compounds and and ingredients would you be looking at to help people?
0: Sure. So, you know, this is where art of a naturopathic doctor really shines is that we would, We take the time with our patients to get to know them and to kind of fit, to kind of determine together what could be, you know, the important root cause or what could be the contributing factors. Of course, that's very idealistic. And sometimes we just can't fix the root cause or, you know, it's very difficult, like in the case of this pandemic, for example. Right. And so oftentimes, you know, we, we work together to first find the most simplest solution so whether it's diet or lifestyle, I mean, you hear a lot right now on self-care about, you know, sleeping well, meditating, sure. ensuring you're eating well. Yep. But sometimes you just can't do it all. I right. mean, the self-care is, can be overwhelming, and a lot of us, you know, are, we still have to maintain jobs and families. And so a naturopathic doctor will then devise, you know, according to you, they'll meet you where you're at and find out what would be the best type of natural product out there because there's just so many depending on your circumstances and so for example let's say you know you're getting a lot of worry and anxiety ongoing and you just happen to be somebody who has like a not a very good diet eat on the run and you know we find out that you don't eat fish either or or any omega-3s as an example sure Instead of, like, reaching for something that's, like, calming or that's going to ease anxiety, either medication like, you know, Ativan or Valium or even some of the natural health products, maybe you'd want to first consider incorporating a fish oil or some EPA, which is a compound of fish oil, or some omega-3s. And so, you know, it's not quick acting, but it's long-term. And so what we would do then is say, okay, let's see about incorporating some, you know, omega-3s to help with stress. There's research that demonstrates that the omega-3 can actually impact the uh, HPA axis or the stress response. Mm -hmm. Also, it can improve memory. There's there's all kinds of effects. And then you would incorporate that with, let's say, a short-acting herb that can just kind of get you through in the short term. And so, we kind of want to do a comprehensive look at addressing the root cause, but then also how to manage your symptoms acutely in the moment. And, you know, before trying some of the more heavy duty drugs that could potentially have interactions or side effects. So, that would be for like a healthy person, for example.
1: Okay. So, you, you've explained a bit about omega fatty acids. And, you know, what else might be in your lexicon? What mm-hmm. else have you seen that works with your clients or, or that you've read about that might help somebody who's suffering from stress?
0: Yeah, so there's a few favorites, sure. based on the research and also based on my clinical experience. And so, you know, one of them could be L-theanine, which is the chemical compound, the active constituent of uh, green tea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is where it's always individualized. And so sure. what I find L-theanine works really well for is in circumstances where, you know, for mental acuity, for performing tasks at work that type of thing, Mm -hmm. it also can help, like the research shows its mechanism is to slow the alpha wave activity of the brain, and it has very minimal interactions. It doesn't have any, you know, effect on neurotransmitter, and so it's a safe compound to try, you know, if, let's say you're somebody who is experiencing stress, and you're having difficulty concentrating at work. Okay. The same thing can be seen with GABA which this is a bit more interesting because, you know, it was believed that GABA taken orally had no effects because it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier as a supplement or taken by mouth. What they discovered recently is that there was a contradiction because they said mechanistically it doesn't make sense, you shouldn't feel relaxed, but then they did all these studies and they discovered that people actually benefited from taking oral GABA and so they're like, what's going on?
1: Was it a placebo effect or was it real?
0: They did the studies and it was found to be better than placebo. So that was kind of confirmed. But what the theory is, which it's still not confirmed fact, but the theory is that we had GABA receptors in our intestinal, in our intestines. Right. And the GABA can bind to those receptors in the intestines and have a stimulatory effect on the vagus nerve. Right, and the so, vagus nerve. Yes.
1: Yeah, I mean that is scientifically proven that there is a stomach brain connection, though, right?
0: Exactly. Yes, but what we're discovering now is that that's how this GABA can potentially can function, and in fact, we also know that probiotics can produce GABA. Oh. <laughs> and so okay. that could be another way in which you know, there's, I'm not sure if you know, but there's a lot of studies now on the gut brain connection for mental health yep. and how probiotics can help in that regard as well. And so that's one theory, right? Is that these, you know, this GABA theory, which is like a GABA acts as a neuro inhibitory. It stops, it kind of calms everything down. Hmm. Yeah. So those are two examples.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, well, what else? This is interesting. Where are going with this. What else would you recommend?
0: So another one of my favorites is lavender oil. Mm-hmm. and so you know most of us know lavender oil as an aromatherapy yep. we smell it and some people don't like it other people like it yep. but now they have studied on its effects taken orally so as a pill in a gel cap actually i was gonna
1: say i didn't know that a lavender was edible okay
0: yeah yeah it is it's safe and it's like one of the most well there's a ton of research now on herbal medicine it gets sure. really excited but what's great about lavender is that first of all There was a meta-analysis that included around 65 randomized controlled trials. 54 found that the lavender was better than placebo at reducing anxiety and stress. And so it's a very, very well-researched herb. And the other thing is that, I mean, the the mechanism isn't 100% known yet, but they've done pharmacokinetic, which means they wanted to see what it would do pharmacologically in the body. yeah. And it didn't seem to inhibit or induce any of the major pathways that drugs are typically metabolized by. And so it's always better to still confirm with either a pharmacist or an ND or somebody before starting anything if you're on meds. But it seems as though it's less worrisome in terms of interactions.
1: So there's no contraindications that you read about.
0: That's right. Exactly. And it's very, very good safety profile. Like the only side effect was like burping up lavender.
1: Okay, well, <laughs> that's for another day. We have time. Yeah. We, have, we have time for one last mystery ingredient. Where would you like to go last?
0: I think another herb that often we don't think about, but is something that has been extensively studied, is a saffron. Mm-hmm. And so saffron is—it's a spice. It's cultivated from the stigma of the crocus plant. Yes. And it was discovered in Iran, similar to lavender. Both of these herbs were discovered in Iran through studies there. And similarly to lavender, a lot of RCTs now on its effects, both as an adjuvant, meaning together with medications, but also as a, like by itself to relieve symptoms associated with, with stress. And so that's another one to look out for. I mean, it's just, it's so interesting. And, you know, they have it as a, you know, the supplement, but you can also, it's an expensive spice, but you don't need much of it.
1: It's the most expensive spice in the world. Yeah, <laughs> it is literally. So it is, but that's okay. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Will you come back again and talk herbs with us?
0: Absolutely, I would love to. Thank you, Jamie.
1: That was Dr. Melanie Kusznarek, ND. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss micro and macronutrients on the tonic. St. Francis Herb Farm is a leading herbal company that is 100% Canadian owned and family run in the Ottawa Valley for over 30 years. St. Francis Herb Farm is obsessed with plant medicine. Their holistic approach includes only certified organic and well crafted herbs. Processes learned over decades get the most out of the herbs, and leveraging science ensures the highest quality. The foundation for their well made plant medicine. St. Francis Herb Farm is well known and trusted for their wildly popular Deep Immune that can help you fend off flus and colds, as well as a full range of natural health and wellness products for the whole family. To learn more, visit stfranciserbfarm.com or follow them on Instagram or Facebook. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. This
2: is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
1: Megan Horsley is a registered holistic nutritionist, blog writer, and recipe developer. She's passionate about helping her clients discover their best selves with a holistic approach to their well-being with delicious food, movement, and thoughts. Megan loves witnessing the transformations that unfold. And she's also a knowledgeable and entertaining writer for Tonic Magazine. Welcome back to the show, my friend.
3: Thank you for having me, Jamie. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. You know, I could say this probably any given time, but I am actually actively trying to drop some weight and eat healthier in summer and lighter because it's hot out, et cetera, et cetera. And so today's show is interesting to me because we're going to try and maximize the nutrients that we get into our body. Yeah.
3: Yes. So what I'd like to chat about today are micro and macronutrients. So micronutrients and macronutrients and what the difference is between the two. And so it's interesting that you mentioned weight loss because what I've seen over the years um, as a nutritionist is that there is a lot of marketing out there on tracking your macros. I'm sure you've heard this. Yeah many times and tracking macros is generally correlated with uh, weight loss or muscle building uh, combination of the two mm-hmm. and so it's common to see this in a lot of marketing and as consumers it can appear that the key to nutrition and the key to quote-unquote being healthy is about focusing on the macronutrients in your diet and so, I'd like to chat a bit about that today because my opinion is that we put too much focus on macronutrients and we're actually missing a key component of our diet, which is uh, focusing on micronutrients.
1: For those who don't know, and you know, you can count me in on that group, what is the difference between micro and macro? Like, what are they and how are they different?
3: Yes, let's chat about that. So, macronutrients are the main components of food that provide us with energy. So, these are carbohydrates. So, simply carbohydrates, protein proteins, and fats. And within carbohydrates, we have simple carbs or sugars, complex carbohydrates like starches. So these would be like your, let's say, white sugar, and complex carbs would be potatoes, sweet potatoes, rice, those sorts of things. And these are actually the easiest form of energy for our bodies to use. Now, within proteins, we're provided with amino acids. And within fats, we have monounsaturated, saturated And polyunsaturated fatty acid chains. So (laughs) within those three components, carbs, proteins, and fats, we have a few other considerations. Mm -hmm. So those are macronutrients. With micronutrients, this term refers to the specific nutrients within each of those macronutrients. So it's looking at the macronutrients on a smaller scale. And this basically means looking at the smaller ingredients that make up the larger parts of carbs, fats, um, and proteins in our diets. So these would be things like vitamins, minerals, amino acids, specific fatty acids. And with micronutrients, we actually have 53 that are essential to our diet. So when we talk about essential nutrients and non-essential nutrients... The essential ones are the ones that we must get from food. We can't actually make them in our bodies. And the non-essential ones are the ones that we can. So you can actually, believe it or not, make some B vitamins in your gut bacteria. Hmm. So if the big reason why I always talk about gut bacteria and probiotics is because, you know, one of these reasons we can actually make our own B vitamins in our gut. So that's just an aside there. Now, Here's the thing. If we decide to eat a diet that is potentially void of these 53 essential micronutrients, what do you think will happen, Jamie? Here's a here's big ticket question. What do you think will happen if we're not focusing on micronutrients?
1: Well, I might. <laughs> you're putting me on the spot here. My, I really but, am. My gut tells me that our body would tend to store them more, which would actually make us retain more weight. I don't know if that's right or wrong.
3: You know what? That's a pretty good answer. So your thought is that if we're not focusing on micronutrients and we focus more on macronutrients, that we could potentially gain more weight? Is that what you're saying? Yes, Okay, so, I, so that could definitely be part of the puzzle. The main issue here is that it's important to consider micronutrients in our diet because if we simply focus on the breakdown of our carbs, fats, and proteins and making sure we're you know getting certain amounts of either of them or any of them for weight loss or muscle building, we're not acknowledging the nutrient density of the foods that we're eating. And we can actually experience nutrient deficiencies. Sure. Now, we need these nutrients for a variety of functions in our body. For example, for the liver to function properly, we need significant amounts of uh, complex uh, B vitamins. We need magnesium. And so, again, if we're eating a diet that's void of these um, nutrients, well, then you can propose that, okay, maybe the liver is not going to be working at its
0: best. Mm
3: -hmm. Now, here's the thing. If you're tracking your carbs at 50 grams a day, so let's look at macro tracking just to put it into perspective here. We're looking at tracking your carbs at 50 grams a day was actually on the lower end. And let's say you're, you're doing this because you want to lose weight. This would be what's called, I guess, a really low carb diet. All you're eating, let's say for your carb intake, because you love bread so much is one piece of white bread. You're feeding yourself carbohydrates that are basically void of nutrients. So this white bread gets processed as a simple sugar in your body because it's refined and While that white flour that's used to make that white bread has had vitamins and minerals added back in to fortify it, this is actually a requirement in Canada that our flours are fortified, these nutrients are synthetic, and they're may they not actually natural to the flour because the natural ones have been stripped from them in the refining process. And so these synthetic vitamins and minerals that are added to that flour may not get absorbed properly in our bodies. Now, if we go back to the bread itself being refined, this will spike your blood sugar. This will spike your insulin. And if this is a regular part of your diet where you're relying on your carbs, again, this is an extreme example, (laughs) Um, but you won't be getting a variety of micronutrients, right? And here's the thing. Some people actually do eat this way.
1: Oh, I know it. And there are people who are on the low carb diets, leaving aside whether or not it's sustainable. I'm not convinced that they look any healthier or they are any healthier simply by dropping weight temporarily.
3: Right. And you make a good point bringing up the Keto diet, right? It's yeah. a low carb diet. Yep. Um, there are right and wrong ways to do that diet. I think for a small population, it can actually be beneficial, depending on what kind of health issues you're going through. Yes, specifically nervous system issues.
1: No, no, and we've covered this on the show. Like for some people, it may be necessary or even helpful. Totally, but yeah. I don't think it's for everybody.
3: Now, but here's the big takeaway I want to take: is that when you are when you are deciding to do something like the keto diet, or maybe let's say it's a low fat diet, like are you considering the fact that you are cutting out those macronutrients significantly, and by doing that, you are decreasing your access to micronutrients. And then my follow-up question is, okay, well, how are you actually getting those? Are you supplementing with a full-spectrum supplement, right? Something that's going to give you those vitamins and minerals that you're missing out on.
1: Well, I would think most people do not have a varied enough diet that they're getting all the macro and micronutrients that they need.
3: Exactly. No, and and that's exactly it. and,
1: And most people really don't have the time or the inclination to turn their attention to it. So I would think the supplementation is probably a very good solution for them because otherwise it would require them to change the way they eat fundamentally. And I don't know if people are prepared to do that. No.
3: No, and you can tell and no, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, you mentioned that you're considering weight loss as well over the summer, right? And and it's a tough thing to change how you're eating, right? I think we can all, you know, look. I definitely consider my caffeine intake an issue and it's something yeah. I work on regularly, but am I willing to get rid of it? Well, I know how to balance it out in my body, right? So I consider what is this food decreasing in my body that I need to replace and so that's something else that we need to consider. Right? You know, there are foods that can decrease or cause nutrient deficiencies elsewhere in our body. If we look at uh, medication, for example, pharmaceuticals can be one way that you are experiencing nutrient deficiencies. And then the follow-up question again is, how are you replacing those micronutrients?
1: Right. Well, let's so, get to that. Let's talk yeah. about ways where people, like if they're so inclined, they can get those micronutrients back into their bodies.
3: Absolutely. So. One of the easiest and most important ways to get a good balance of micronutrients is to eat a diet that is full of Whole foods that are nutrient dense so basically this means unrefined foods, foods that are in their whole, that are grown in their whole sense and visually, just to make this an easier process, you can eat the rainbow, and I'm sure you've heard that many times, but eating the rainbow means you're eating a variety of colors in your diet and by doing this you'll get a lot of phytonutrients, so this means specifically nutrients from plants so plant-based nutrients, this is where we can get a lot of our vitamins and minerals and eating foods that are really rich in colors like cabbage think of all of the bright colors um, right now that we have from our produce yep. cabbage avocado radishes strawberries deep dark berries right these are full of micronutrients now on the topic of highly nutrient-dense foods we have things like again avocados bananas broccoli Choosing brown rice over white rice, right? Yep. Looking for ways you can increase your nutrient uh, density. Nuts and seeds, which are a great source of fiber and protein and essential fatty acids like omega 3s and 6s, right? So these are easy things you can throw into a salad and you don't even have to think about it. You're already eating the rainbow. Yep. You see what I'm saying?
1: Yep. <laughs> I do. I see it. I see it in my yeah, mind's eye. You
3: see it. You see it. <laughs> Another thing you can add into your diet are sprouts such as broccoli, alfalfa, and radish sprouts. Now, these are specifically more bioavailable in their nutrients than their full-grown siblings. So if you look at a full-grown broccoli compared to broccoli sprouts, the sprouts actually have nutrients that are more available and accessible for your body to absorb.
1: Yeah, and I would think another benefit of the sprouts is if you're not a fan of the the, the flavor of some of these vegetables, and I think for a lot of people that's an issue, the sprouts, where you can taste it, it's not quite the same as having a Brussels sprout or a broccoli if, if you find those objectionable.
3: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so you get more benefits from eating the sprout form. You're absolutely right. You don't have to taste it.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, for some people it's an issue. I happen to like that food group, but a lot of people don't.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So the point I'm trying to make here is that our food is really powerful and, you know, we should look to eating a variety of foods and get curious about the food we are eating and what it actually contains so that we can really reach our full potential of all of the 53 essential nutrients.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, that's, that's amazing advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
3: Thank you for having me, Jamie. Take
1: care. That was Megan Horsley. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss exercise that supports running, hiking, and walking on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Center is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com.
2: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
1: Ali Lubin was born and raised in Toronto to two very athletic parents. Her love of sports, health, and wellness led her to her first university degree in kinesiology from McGill University. Her keen interest in preventative medicine led to her second degree in dietetics from Ryerson University, and she's worked for years with elite athletes as a dietitian and fitness coach, and then as a downtown dietitian working with trainers to try and make people as healthy as possible through nutrition and exercise. In 2009, Allie opened her own studio, Harmony Fitness. Welcome back to the show. How is it going, my friend?
2: Thank you. It's been interesting times.
1: It is. That's what I say. It's interesting. interesting and we let people decide whether that's positive or negative or it's kind of day by day, right?
2: It's It's about being creative. It's about using the fancy buzzwords of pivoting with the knowledge that you have, the people in your corner, knowing the massive scope in the fitness industry. So it's about just being super creative right now and coming out the other side, hopefully on a positive way.
1: Agreed. So what I've been noticing is there's a lot, a lot of people who normally would be going to facilities like yours, but, or maybe haven't done anything at all. And they've decided that they're going to start running and walking more and hiking which is great, but we should talk about what that means and how you can support that and how you can maximize that activity. Okay. Excellent. Yep. So let's get started, you know, and it may be obvious to people, but I think it needs to be said, what are the benefits of running or hiking or walking long distance?
2: Well, the benefits are the same as any kind of exercise whatsoever. So of course it would reducing the risk of heart disease. Well, first of all, Running, walking, hiking, they're all cardiovascular exercises. So it, it helps to support and improve one's cardiovascular system, your heart, your lungs. So it reduces the risk of chances of heart attack or stroke just by doing any form of walking, running, or hiking. It reduces the risk of those cardiovascular diseases, as I just mentioned, lowers the risk of developing some cancers, lowers the risk of neurological diseases. There's lots of research in the Alzheimer's and Parkinson's world, which I'm really familiar with. And then there are so many incredible benefits. It helps to improve your sleep. It helps to improve your self-confidence mood your mood absolutely the benefits like just outweigh the negative aspects of anything
1: and i think what people have to understand is this the biggest boost to your health comes from 0 to 20 not eighty to a hundred, if you catch my drift, right? Of course, like, I do. Yeah. Like so, sitting on the couch doing nothing. If you just got off your bum and walked around the block, you'd feel better. But the health benefits are exponential at that point. Correct. It's when you're already working out five or six times doing anything more. It kind of becomes well, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's as helpful. So for those of you who think, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. Like, it's the, what, what's the difference? There's a huge difference between doing nothing and doing something. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely.
1: That being said, you know, even walking or hiking comes with some potential risks. So why don't we talk about what can happen if you start running or jogging or hiking and what can happen to your body?
2: Sure. I mean, there's basic common injuries. Yeah. Uh, Little injuries, especially if you've never done it before. You could think you could have things like blisters. You could experience some form of shin pains. You could have different soft tissue injuries like pulling a muscle or a strain of some sort. And I mean, the obvious ones being skin injuries. You can be sunburnt. You can have bruises from falling, simple things like that. But all of that's manageable. Blisters, you've got to just get a great pair of running shoes. Don't go for the less expensive kind. If you're a true walker, make sure they're a walking shoe. If you're a runner, get into a good supportive running shoe. If you're a hiker, get something that covers your ankles so it gives you a little bit more support in those ankles to help reduce shin pain, you can do little exercises, which I know we're going to talk about after, but tapping your feet, typically people who haven't done a ton of walking and are starting that exercise or running, you start to feel things in your shin. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going right into your shin bone. It just means that you're exhausting something called your tibialis anterior muscle, which is the front of your shin muscle, just like doing a ton of bicep curls when you haven't done them in a long time just lifting your toes up works that front muscle, and when you do that a whole bunch of times and you haven't done it in a long time, it's going to be quite sore. So tapping your toes while sitting on the sofa in anticipation of that outdoor experience is is the best. Preventing soft tissue injuries and stuff like pulling a muscle or ligament strains or anything, making sure that you stretch, which will go through that kind of stuff. And skin injuries, things like sunburns and bruises, make sure that you wear your proper sunscreen and bruises. Just be very careful of your terrain not to fall.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we're not going to get into the specifics because I've covered that in different shows and we don't have enough time. But, you know, like there's also things, obviously, if you're straining yourself, you know, you're going to put your stresses on your body. You can hurt your back. You can, you know, you can have hip pointer issues. Also, you could dehydrate if you're not careful. But we have discussed that elsewhere. What are your recommendations for somebody who's just sort of taking up either running or hiking or walking? What would you suggest are some of the ideas of just getting into it?
2: That's a great question. I would start slow. For someone who has never walked before, start with walking, don't jump right to running. If it's someone who's never hiked before, don't start with running and then take it to hiking. Work your way up. Our body adapts very, very quickly. So if you start with a walking routine and you've really never walked before, make a commitment with yourself for seven days to get off the sofa, as you suggested earlier. Walk to the faraway stop sign that you can see and back and make that commitment for seven days. And the reason I say that is because you may want to enter into a program, but if you don't have the commitment, You can't enter into a program. And then we deal with what the program is. So with respect to walking again, starting with a great pair of shoes, not making that first distance for the first week or two weeks too far Again, just getting into the habits of it, making sure you do a stretch, a little bit of a warm-up before you get into your walk. Once you're ready to progress to running, do a combination of a walk-run combination. Best ways to do that is look at all the hydro poles on a street and do one hydropole to the next hydropole walk, the next hydropole to hydropole jog, back to the walk, back to the jog, until you can do two hydro poles and three hydro poles in a row, and then that'll help increase your stamina to a jog or a running program. In terms of hiking, most hikes are walk one way and return. Some hikes are a circle. Make sure that when you go for a hike and it's one of your first hikes, you have your water, you have your sunscreen, you have your proper footwear, have a snack with you. And most important, make sure that you don't enter a hike that is a gigantic circle that if you don't walk all the way around, you can't get back. Yep. <laughs> you yep. don't, You don't yep. want to be too far away yep. from your starting point if it just doesn't work. So those are my suggestions.
1: I would add a couple, and that is this, you know, like when you're out walking or running, there's always going to be somebody who's fitter, faster, stronger. Correct. Don't
2: compete with anybody
1: else. Don't compete with anybody yep. else. If you're competitive and I'm super competitive, compete with yourself because really that's the only thing that matters. So like if you really are inclined to push... Push within your own parameters. So like if you feel like you want to go for a walk, you know, maybe forget about distance, maybe just go for time. Like today I'm going to walk for 15 minutes, but tomorrow I might walk for 17 minutes or maybe even 20. Great idea. That's the way you build up to it. Because let me tell you, there's always somebody faster. There's always somebody stronger and it doesn't matter. It's not that kind of race. There's always
2: someone who makes it look easier.
1: A (laughs) hundred percent. What do you think about working out with other people, like whether it's family members or run buddies or things like that?
2: I love the idea because it, for many reasons. One, the most important is it's accountability. So you've made a date with somebody else. So if you just don't feel like it, you've made an appointment, a commitment with a run buddy, a walk buddy, and that'll get you off your sofa. The other thing it does is it helps to reduce stress, just getting out to be around other people, being able to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, what's going on in your world. That social interaction is super, super important. Talk about the competitive nature, as you just suggested. Each of you will push each other a little bit further in terms of, of distance or time or to a specific spot to go pick up groceries or something. So run buddies, friends, partners, they're fantastic additions to any form of exercise.
1: I would say there's one caveat. Choose your run buddy. Smartly. smartly. Pick the right person. I remember when I went to law school, a buddy of mine and I were going to join a gym and I wondered whether or not he was actually going to follow through. And we were planning to do stuff together. He did it for a week and I ended up doing it like for years, but he crapped out after a week. And so my plans to work out with him were totally out the window. So, you know, then you're, you may be carrying on alone. So choose wisely. Somebody who's reliable. Yes. And the other thing I would say is this, rest days are important too, right? Like let's Very not, important. Let's yeah. not overdo it. Even if you're just walking, give your body a chance to recover, particularly if you're pushing it for you.
2: Overtraining is, is something that's really discussed in people who are new to any form of exercise. Yep. So running beyond your current level of fitness and like can just put... A lot of stress on your muscles, your tendons, your ligaments, putting it under strain. The shins are not something that adapt very quickly to a big walking, running, or hiking program. You're definitely going to feel it in your shins. Overtraining can result in incorrect techniques, which you definitely don't want to have that happen because then you risk injuries even more. But giving yourself a break or changing it up, doing a different form of activity doesn't have to be again the walking, the running, or the hiking. It can be swimming, it can be weight training, it can be something different different to make sure that you're not uh, doing any form of overtraining to get injured.
1: Okay, so we have time for one last question, and that is this. What would you do collaterally to support somebody who's running or hiking? What sort of other things should they be doing?
2: I am a big proponent of strength training, strength training for almost any form of exercise. So basic things that you can do in your home, because the topic that we're talking about is an inexpensive, easy type of exercise. So what can we do in our homes? We can do things like squats. We can do skater hops, which is jumping side to side lateral movements. You can do those squats and add some impact to it, like jump squats. You can do long jumps, You can do lots of core and ab work to stabilize. You can do different kinds of lunges and sit-ups and stand-ups. So there's no shortage of things to complement a running program, a walking program, a hiking program. As long as you're strengthening your core, your lower body, getting that heart rate up, you'll be in great condition to be able to master
1: it. Well, that's great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
2: My absolute pleasure.
1: That was Ali Lubin. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to overcome loneliness on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighbourhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa.
2: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
1: Carlisle Jansen is a sex therapist and founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality store and workshop centre. She's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. You can find her educational videos and TED Talk at CarlyleJansen.com, And she can be contacted at Carlisle at Good For Her. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
4: Hi, I'm well. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, so last time you were on the show, last month, we were talking about something that I think we both find incredibly important and timely, and that is how people are coping with loneliness. And for those who didn't get a chance to hear the show, you can go on the website, thetonic.ca, and you can listen to the podcast where we discuss sort of the causes of loneliness and what the health impacts are. And we just started sinking our teeth into, okay, so what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. So let's start there. One of the issues that we talked about towards the end of the last show was normalizing loneliness. And what does that mean to you?
4: So it means that we need to address that this is something that is actually quite pervasive, that you're not alone, that there's not something wrong with you, that you feel lonely. Because sometimes people, it feels like a failure to be lonely, especially if you live in a big city. We think, wow, there's so many people around. How could I be lonely? And so normalizing it means that then it's kind of like a lot of discussion around depression, mental illness. You know, even other ailments, so that you can feel like, okay, this is something I can deal with, other people are dealing with it. And it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with me, that I'm some kind of a failure.
1: I mean, it sounds ironic, but like you don't have to be alone in your loneliness, right? Like mm-hmm. you're you're not alone, literally. There are other people that are feeling that way. And I think by destigmatizing the issue of loneliness it allows people to step forward, identify themselves as having perhaps issues with it and seeking the help that they might need. Right.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And definitely, you know, feeling like it's okay to reach out. Some people will, you know, seek professional help, reaching out to family and even just saying, you know, I'm really lonely can be really freeing. You know, you don't yeah. have to hide behind it. You don't have to pretend it's not there. And you can say, "You know, I'm lonely." And then people can help you. People can reach out to you. People can say like, "Hey, how can I be there for you?"
1: Right. Well, let's talk about first steps. So, if somebody, if a listener's feeling lonely, what would you recommend to do to start?
4: Yeah, I think the first thing to do is to realize that it's it's a feeling. It's not a fact. So it's not a static, you are lonely, that that will be it forever. (laughs) It's a feeling. It's there right now. It may have been there for a long time, and it may not go away right away. But it's about like, okay, I can accept that this is going on. If you can accept it, then you can work with it. If you're fighting it, it's hard to work with it. So just accept, okay, this is a feeling. This is not for the rest of my life. And then you can look at it a little bit. Mm
1: -hmm. What's next?
4: And then sometimes there are a lot of aspects of mindfulness that are really helpful. So mindfulness helps in lots of aspects of life, and it often helps to bring you into the moment. And certainly mindful self-compassion is really helpful so that you're not often anxieties about stress about the future. What if I'm lonely forever? You can get depressed about, you know, oh my goodness, I've been feeling this way for so long. It allows you to be in the moment and to be compassionate with yourself and feel like, okay, so, this is what I'm feeling. This is really hard, and not piling shame on top of yourself, but just noticing it. And one of the things that's often really helpful is to use what's called cognitive behavioral techniques, which is looking at what are the things that I am saying to myself, and often it's what do I think other people are saying and thinking about me because we often, that loneliness, we think that, oh, that person looked at me. I bet they think that I'm, you know, a loser or, you know, that person didn't stop and say, hello, I bet because they don't like me, right? As opposed to they didn't see you.
1: <laughs> right. No, no, but, but it's those false narratives, right? And, and yeah. that easily becomes, oh, I don't deserve to have friends or I, you know, like it's me, you know, yeah. it must be me. I'm not worthy of anything other than loneliness. And, and that can be, a really damaging narrative.
4: Absolutely, and it keeps us there. And it can lead to what's often associated with loneliness we talked about last time is the depression, right? Yep. And so depression is often mixed up or confused with loneliness, and they are interrelated, whereas loneliness is more about your negative feelings about connection and the social world, whereas depression is sort of more generalized. But certainly, if you keep yourself in that self-talk and you think negatively of yourself, think that everybody doesn't like you, it's going to potentially lead you down a road to a more global sense of depression and that can be really dangerous.
1: Okay. So we've identified how to sort of kickstart, but mm-hmm. beyond sort of recognizing an awareness and being kind to yourself, there are things that we can do to get out of that rut, yeah?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And so John Cacioppo is a psychologist, and he is someone who really looked a lot at loneliness. He unfortunately has passed now, but he developed this whole acronym EASE, like to be at ease. And mm-hmm. And the first thing he says is that you need to extend yourself. So you need to reach out. And, of course, this is so hard (laughs) you know this is is not easy this is not like you know oh great just extend yourself put yourself out there but even just a little bit even just reaching out to one person going online to find people who are like you whatever that is just connect on a little level and be easy with yourself around it too because sometimes we will see people and again like I explained you're going to think oh that person's not interested in talking to me, maybe somebody is shy and you think, oh, you know, they, they must not like me. Well, they're just, you know, they're shy. So really paying attention to how you are in those spaces and whether you've got this negative self-talk going on and trying to kind of push yourself a little bit through it. Because if you don't, then you're going to be still alone, right? You're still going to be by yourself. So then it becomes a cycle that kind of feeds on itself. So trying to just get yourself out there, even in a little bit of a way, whatever feels the easiest for you to start, just so that you can get some confidence and keep that momentum going is really important.
1: Okay. Now, let's say you're a little farther along in the process. What are some recommendations you would have for sort of working on social connections? And it may seem obvious to some people, but for others, you know, this is something new. These are new thoughts.
4: So the second thing that John talks about is having like an action plan. Okay. So sometimes, you know, we don't get to where we, we want to be usually without an action plan. So realize, okay, this is hard. Not everybody's going to like me, but get to know people. So sometimes it you know, we're waiting for people to ask about us. So inquire, be curious about people, you know, what do you like? What's your passion what feeds you? What, what kinds of things do you like to do? You know, what have you learned in life? Any of those kinds of things so that you have a bit of a sense of like, how do I want to connect to people? How do I want to reach out to them? And if you ask questions of people, I find that they're generally pretty responsive. It's that when you don't have anything to say, yeah. <laughs> that then, you know, they're like, okay, well, I don't really want to talk to you anymore. So having a bit of an action plan and how do you want to connect with people is
1: important. You know, I'm a better talker than I am a listener but I think mm. for a lot of people it might just be easier to like being a good listener is a huge part of friendship and and connecting with people right like being having that compassion and genuinely caring and listening to what they have to say has, has to be helpful in cultivating relationships I would think
4: well I- that we all crave connection which is why loneliness is so detrimental to our health and so that connection is really important and therefore when somebody's interested in us i mean that i don't know many people who don't find that a great quality
1: yeah it's Um, engaging right you know it's really
4: engaging and it's nice that people seem to find us interesting and you know, only if maybe we don't feel like we have something to talk about or we, yeah. we feel embarrassed. But I would say most people are really happy to be asked about who you are and what you like and to learn from you.
1: What other things should people be thinking about? What sort of skills and ideas should they be focusing on?
4: Yeah, so the S part of ease is to seek collectives. So, you know, it can feel really lonely if you feel like nobody has been through what you've been through. Nobody is interested in the same things. Nobody likes to do the same things. Nobody thinks the way you do. And so trying, and the great thing about online is you can find people online. There are lots of meetup groups. There are lots of discussion forums. There are places where you can find people. If you don't know anyone like you, you can find people who are like you it, whether it's, you know, you're interested in something very specific like Marxist philosophy. There are other people like you. They might not live next door, but they're (laughs) out there. So seek people who are like you. And if it doesn't work the first time, don't give up. It's not always going to work the first time. Give yourself a few opportunities to stretch a little bit and see if that works and keep trying because it's so magical when you feel like somebody gets you.
1: (laughs) It's true. So what's the last E? E and E's, what does it stand for?
4: So the last one is expect the best, because sometimes we, especially when we have negative self-talk, we expect that it's not going to go well, and we almost talk ourselves out of it before we get there, and we think, oh, it's not going to work, and they're not going to like me, and I'm not going to connect, and it's going to be boring, whatever. So go in with a positive attitude and look for the positives, because if you're looking for the negatives, we're always going to find the negatives. Yeah. You're always going to see what's not working, and again, you're going to read into how people interact with you. So be curious. Don't expect it to necessarily be mind-blowing, but go with little victories, little moments where you were like, oh, that was kind of nice, right? And savor those moments and that curiosity that you have about learning from other people can sometimes take away the focus on, you know, oh, I must be doing something wrong or they don't like me. So having our expectations be high, not super high, like don't think that all of a sudden you're going to make 18 friends when you go out, but that you're going to have a realistic expectation that, you know, you're going to make a connection with at least one person, that you're going to find one person interesting, that you are going to enjoy yourself, that you're going to learn something
1: about yourself. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh,
4: you're always welcome.
1: We'll hear back from you next month. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Melanie Kushnarecki, Megan Horsley, Ali Lubin, and Carlisle Jansen. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. During COVID-19, we're suspending distribution of the magazine, but Tonic's generally available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss everything you've ever wanted to know about detox, eye health, what to do when you're the only person in the household who's dieting, and how yoga can help you with your home fitness. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet,
0: exercise, supplementation, or medication program.